0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to be back after the wedding last weekend, and uh, fantastic to be with you all, and of course with parking. Um, This week is a one-off sermon. It's just for this week. Next week, we start a brand new series, and that series is going to be dealing with churchy words. So words that you hear at church all the time, and you wonder... What does that really mean? What does the word Trinity really mean? And other words like that, that we just kind of use as a matter of our conversations with one another, but maybe you've never really sat down and thought, okay, what does this word really mean and why do we use it? So next week we start a short series of about a month to two months on churchy type of words. But this week we get to talk about some scary things. Now I know when you come to church, uh, one of the last things you want to hear in a sermon is probably something about death. That's probably not a really comforting, exciting thing to hear about. Another one that's not too exciting to hear about might be, uh, of course, sin, any type of sin. Of course, you don't want to hear about divorce. That's a real touchy subject. Um, What about this one? Pay unto Caesar, what is Caesar's? You want to hear a message on taxes? Isn't that awesome? I'll do you one better. What about tithing? Starting the message off with, everybody needs to give a little bit more. It can be really scary to go, where is he going with that type of message. But let me share with you what I think might be the two scariest words ever uttered in the context of a church. And we're having fun doing this. It is, slide now. Volunteers need it. Thank you, Logan. I appreciate that. I know you're there always to have my back. Awesome, buddy. Volunteers needed because all of a sudden, you now go, I can't serve in the nursery. I don't like cutting grass. What is this whole safety thing about? I have no clue what this whole parking thing is about. I can't do anymore. My life, my schedule is so full. Tim, just ask me for some extra money. I'll gladly give that to you, but don't ask of my time. How can I serve and give Tim, you don't understand. I've been doing it for 40 years. I'm tired. I can't give anymore, serve anymore, volunteer anymore. My time has passed. It's time for the young bucks to take up that effort. I no longer can do it. I've done my time. Or of course, the good one, I'm not qualified. So we're going to look at a section of Scripture today, and I'm going to try not to say anything about the needs here at Calvary. You know what those needs are. If you're here for announcements every week, you hear those needs, and in fact, you can probably see needs that we don't even mention. So I'm confident God is going to lead you and guide you at the end of this message to go, this is how I can live my faith in a way that's recognizable to the rest of the world, And to the people here at Calvary. So I'm going to let God take care of the real application. We're going to deal with the story. And the story starts in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through kind of the end of that uh, last section there, verse 45. And the story starts out with this terrible question. Now, if you've ever asked me this question, can you do me a favor? And if you've asked me that question, you know my response. My response is, no. Tell me what you'd like, and then I'll tell you if I can do it or not. Because I'm not going to give you the open-ended, well, yeah, I can do you a favor. Of course, I want to do you a favor, but I've gotten into trouble sometimes when I said yes, and I realized, wow, that cost me a half a day. Okay, so I will always ask, well, what is the favor first? Then we'll talk about whether or not I can do that. So Jesus is faced with a similar situation, but he acts with unbelievable grace and patience and mercy. He is so not like me and how I react. He is awesome in how he reacts. But the question is posed to him in verse 35 of Mark chapter 10, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their brothers, came to him, two of the disciples, came to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do us whatever we ask of you. <coughs> that Beautiful question, do me a favor. Now, Jesus has on his side all knowledge. He knows exactly what they're going to ask for, so we can answer the question a little bit more boldly and perhaps with a little bit more patience and kindness. Because he knows exactly where this story is going to go. And so he responds to this, can you do me a favor? Do whatever we ask of you, my brother and I. And verse 36 We're told of his response. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in glory. What they're asking for is Jesus in your kingdom that we hear about, we don't fully understand, but we know somehow you're going to rule and reign. You're going to bring Israel in together. I and my brother, we want to be prominent We want to be important and we want to be crucial. We want to rule alongside of you while you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Make us important. That's pretty bold. I would expect Peter to say something like that. I mean, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always making a fool of himself. He's always doing exactly what's on his heart without thinking through the words that he's speaking. But James and John, you guys are pillars of the faith. You will become the apostle of love and a martyr. You are amazing apostles and disciples and leaders of the Christian church. We read your books to this day. And the thought on your mind, as Jesus is entering into the last week of his life, the thought on your mind is, how can we be important? How can we get the best spots in your kingdom? There could be no better spot next to the king than on the right side and left side. I mean, you are important, crucial. They're asking something incredibly prideful, aren't they? Make me essential, make me an object in front of others, make me special. I think we've all had those times in our life and relationships and different crowds that we hang with that we love being the star. We love being important. We love being asked our advice. We love being asked how our week was, how our day was, what's going on. We enjoy that type of focus many times. Even if you're one of those people that say, oh, Tim, I don't like to be the, uh, the, oh, not object of the party, head of the party. Everybody else knows that except me. So whatever it is, the, the highlight, I, whatever. You don't want to be that, uh, that person who is always noticeable. You like to sign a, kind of fit into the back and not be noticed. But everyone, deep down, because of our sinfulness, we do like to be the object of attention. Maybe the way we want it, the way we want it expressed, but we like Having people respect us, honor us, and think good of us, best of us, or better of us. And that's kind of where James and John was. We want to be important, crucial, and noticeable, prominent in your kingdom. And so Jesus responds (laughs) Jesus said to them, verse 38, You do not know what you are asking. That's an understatement. They have no clue what they're asking, really. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am being baptized? What Jesus is saying, you understand that for me to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I have to do something radically against human nature. I have to give myself over to be crucified on behalf of sinners. I have to deny myself life so that you may have life eternal. I have to die. I have to suffer. I have to be physically abused, whipped, beaten. I have to be mocked. I have to be lied about. And I have to be denied and rejected and abandoned. I have to do this alone. I have to be alone. I have to walk this path alone. I have to carry a cross that was meant for you, James and John. I'm taking your cross. Do you really think you can do what is necessary to sit alongside the King of kings and Lord of lords? Do you have to go through what I am going through? Now, he's not talking about do you have to drink what I'm drinking or be baptized like John the Baptist did it. He's talking about the cruel, vicious, Punishment of going through the execution by the Romans of being hung upon the cross. That's what he's talking about. That's what it took for Jesus to be King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's what it took for Jesus to be seated upon the throne of glory in all of his majesty and power and amazing holiness. It took a world of weight upon his shoulder of sin to get to that. Unbelievable. James, John, do you really know what you're asking for? At that moment, you would think any reasonable person would go, okay, you know what? You're right, Jesus. I probably overstepped my bounds here. But this is how James and John responded Verse 39 through verse 40. And they said to him, we are able. Oh, oh, every one of us here, first of all, probably saw that coming and just all of a sudden let out a sigh of groaning. Oh, guys, you've got no idea the suffering that our Savior is going through. And we'll go through to be that King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are so quick to say, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. You know what, James and John You've got part of the story right. You are going to suffer hardships. James, you're going to be martyred. John, you're going to be exiled at best and die an old man by yourself. Not surrounded by friends and family. You're going to be alone. Yes, you are going to give the church amazing teaching through the gift of the Holy Spirit, but you are going to die alone. And James, you're going to suffer martyrdom. You're going to feel exactly what I'm feeling as I go to the cross, Jesus is telling them. You're going to suffer. You're going to have a life of hardship that you cannot even imagine at this moment. Rejected by the Jews, having to flee Israel in order to stay safe, you are going to face a lot. But Jesus says, the rewards of heaven aren't mine to grant. There's someone else's. And he's talking about God the Father. God the Father sets us in glory. He brings us to glory. He redeems us and clothes us in the righteousness of Christ and makes us right and ready for glory. That's God's work. God's work is to reward, even though we've done nothing. It's all the reward of Christ lavished upon us, which is called grace and mercy. And loving kindness. So Jesus' response is amazingly divine. Yes, you will suffer, but the rewards of heaven, they're God the Father's to give. Now He's gonna lavish them upon us, but they're His to give, not mine that is in Christ. And He continues, and big surprise. All of this is happening in earshot of the other ten disciples. And when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. That's Mark's way of saying they were ticked at these two for promoting themselves, for the pride and arrogance, for the feeling that they deserve a better place in heaven than the other ten. Now what's amazing here is that Judas is included in this. Judas, the one who betrays Christ with a kiss of love, he's also really ticked off at these other two disciples that are trying to make a name for themselves and position themselves for power, glory, preeminence, and importance. All ten of them were ticked at him. Rightly so. Human response. And I think against that sin of pride and arrogance... A very right response. And so Jesus, probably knowing exactly what is happening, obviously, he's there in the context of that conversation, verse 42 through the following, or verse 42, and Jesus called to them, or called to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he sets the stage by showing us a contrast. He starts by saying, you know that the unbeliever, and I think he's really referring to here probably Rome because that's the rulers in Israel, as well as the Jewish leaders that are not biblically mindset at all, but they are power-driven. He says, these people, you know, that are in authority over you as unbelievers, they love lording it over you. They love controlling you. They love making sure you understand they're in power. They're in power. They're in power. They love making it a point to show their rule over you. That's the unbeliever. That's how the, and described as a Gentile, but that's how the unbeliever is seen in their rule and authority. They want power, power, power. And that's why we have the phrase that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, except for God. God is not corrupted by his absolute power, but we are. When we're given a little bit of power, it can go to our head. I can't tell you how many times in life I've had a job where I've been probably the older person compared to my manager, and that manager gets promoted, and the first thing, they just have to exercise their power for whatever reason. And I've told you stories about a time that I was at Kinko's, and I'm like, I knew what was right. I knew that we would get in trouble, but following this new manager who had never had a moment of management, training in his life, or skill in his life, giving orders, and yes, we ended up getting in trouble. But we're following orders. Um, By the way, that never is an excuse, I found out, uh, from my boss's boss. Um, But The Gentiles, the unbeliever, rules harshly. Now, you may find times in your life, and we may find times in our experience as more of a democracy than an emperor rule that they were facing in Rome, that we see that there's sometimes gentle kindness and compassion, but I don't think at the heart of it, it is gentleness and compassion. Sometimes it is. It's best for me to maintain power and control by being generous and kind at the moment in order to get and keep my power. So Jesus starts with that. This is how the Gentiles rule. But he says in verse 43 and 44, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus says in Instead of trying to exercise your power and your rights and your rule and your importance and how crucial you are, how necessary you are, how essential you are, how brilliant and powerful you are, instead of forcing that, instead, we take on an opposite role. We tell others how important they are by serving them. And Jesus uses a very particular word there, and I'm glad many translations translate the word rightly. Doulos, meaning slave. And yes, it means slave. Not bondservant, not servant. It means slave. Only one meaning for it. It's just some English translations like to soften that word because that word has a lot of baggage to it. That means you have no rights. You're at the mercy of others. And Jesus says, you're right. Live as if other people's rights are far greater than yours, that their importance is far greater than your importance, that their pleasures are far greater than yours, that their comfort is far greater than yours. You bear the inconvenience. You bear the hardship on behalf of others. Says, I know that's crazy because the world acts opposite. They want control and power and make you serve them, but not so in the family of God. We try to outdo serving others. Do you know what it's like to be in a church where everyone tries to outdo serving others? I don't. I don't know what that's like because I've. I've lived with people my whole life in churches, and people are people. We're not perfect. And we often try to take the easy way out and and say, that is someone else's job, not mine. Someone else will eventually do it. I don't have to. And Jesus would say to that type of excuse, I don't care if you've done it a thousand times. Your role in the body of Christ is to be a slave to others. Their importance and their comfort is far greater than your importance, your sense of privilege, your sense of prestige and essentialness, and you serve others. And just in case... We need more of a motivation than what Jesus himself just said. He ends with this. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. How many of you noticed, if you served at parking and got a shirt, that that was the scripture verse on the tag? I came not to be served, but to serve. This is Jesus. If anyone should be worshipped and bowed down to, it's Him. If anyone should be praised and sat at the seat of privilege and honor, it's Him. We sing songs about Him. We pray to Him. We worship Him. He is God. And He said, in this moment and in this time... I'm not here to be praised and gloried and fussed over. I'm here to serve. And ultimately, I'm here to give my life for you. That is so opposite of the world. But it is so right for the believer. In the end, I want us to remind, I want to be reminded of 1 John 3.16. Now, we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, 1 John 3.16, I think, is just an awesome of a verse, just a different book with the number one in front of it. It says, this is how, this is how we know what love is. A question that songs have been asking and poets have been asking forever. What is love? This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And you can make that personal. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for me. For me. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John says, in essence, some probably 50 years after the Mark chapter 10 incident, I learned my lesson. It's not about me and how important I am and how my seat needs to be saved, how my parking spot needs to be saved, how I need to be honored, how I need to be treated, how I need to be satisfied, how I need to be acknowledged. It's not about me. John learned his lesson and knew it was all about how can I love on people so much That they walk away knowing that they are truly important in God's family more than me. More honored than me. More respected than me. And there is no, no better place to find that encouragement and to find the joy of Jesus' sacrifice, as weird as that may sound, than in the table before us. So I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to have the elders come up. And as you come, uh, the sides are just going to come down to the middle, and you're going to come and take it. You're going to go back to your seats, and you're going to take it um, by yourselves. But this cannot be more of a visual kick in the pants, maybe, for God's people to go. If I'm holding this in my hand, and it symbolizes Christ's body and blood, he really did sacrifice himself. What is he calling you to sacrifice? What is he calling you to give? How is he calling you to be a servant, a slave of all? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your amazing love. John constantly talks about your love And how love is an action, not just a feeling. Help us, Father, to act in love by serving one another, by honoring one another, by making others more important than ourselves. Help us, Father, with that pride. May we lay it at this table today, the pride and arrogance that we must be number one, that we must be acknowledged and served and honored. And may you, Father, take the object and place of supremacy in our hearts as we join in worship and we join at this table. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen.